Welcome to Indoctrination, a weekly conversation series about protecting yourself from systems of control. I'm your host, Rachel Bernstein. Hi, everyone. Today on the show, we have a special guest, someone who's going to speak to us this week and also next week, someone who is talking to us about experiences that he hasn't talked about before. When I asked him, to let me know a little bit about what he wanted me to say as part of his introduction. He sent me something that's so beautifully written that I want to be able to read it just as he wrote it. He says, It's a strange feeling when you believe everything is okay, but a voice inside you is saying otherwise. I didn't realize the truth that voice was speaking, and it's taken time to learn how to hear it again. That voice is the reason why I felt moved to talk about my experience openly now. It was more difficult than I expected, but it was healing and helped me better understand how far I've come. I want people to know that things can always change in life. You are never stuck. I want people to realize that despite someone's credentials, authority, or profession, they are still a person just like you. They possess the same human flaws as anyone else and are capable of doing wrong, especially when they know you're vulnerable. When I was 15, I was lost. I felt alone, and I didn't know how to voice the thoughts and feelings troubling me. My parents were divorced, my mother was ill, and I had been fulfilling roles I wasn't ready for, playing a caretaker, parent, brother, son, head of household, and student, while trying to feel like a normal young teenager. It created a blurry and confusing image of myself. It affected me to the point that my family felt I needed help, so I was taken to see a therapist. He seemed genuine and helpful, and he gained my trust by appearing to understand and relate to me. That seemed well but I did not have the experience to know that the healthy boundaries of a therapeutic relationship were never there. From the beginning, he used my vulnerabilities to manipulate my emotions, belief system, and relationships with my family and friends in order to isolate me and insert himself and his wife into those roles. After 11 years of being manipulated to be responsible for his life and his personal needs, I was able to find a way out. Looking back now, it seems clear. What I find difficult is knowing that the person in that story was me. I have memories of experiences that I cannot imagine ever being a part of now, but they happened. I find every day that passes is another day where I'm living my own life, becoming more of who I want to be. That is the message I want people to know, especially for others who have been manipulated. Clients of this and other therapists have had terrible experiences and are trying to learn how to function normally in everyday life. To those who need to hear it, know that it gets better with time. Whether you're finding your way out or have broken free, there is light at the end of the tunnel and life is waiting for you. Beautiful, beautiful, and powerful. Here is Jonathan now. So I want to welcome Jonathan to the show. He's someone who is new to me and is going to be new to all of you listening. And he has a story to tell that is incredibly important because just from doing this work for a lot of years, this is something that I consistently hear about that a lot of people don't know about. And a lot of people don't know that it happens and that it exists and also what to do about it and what the after effects are and all of it. So I'm very happy to have you on the show, Jonathan. Thank you, Rachel. I'm uh, very happy to really have the opportunity to talk about this in a public way where I haven't gotten to do so before and to also do it with somebody who has um, a lot of experience and can give me some insight. I just really feel that what happened to me is probably something that 
And one, as I know, has happened to other people, particularly dealing with uh, a therapist that I was seeing who took advantage of my vulnerabilities when I was still like 15 years old and I was kind of on my own. It just seems like uh, the more I hear about now, I, I hear that this is something that's happening. And um, I feel that if there's other people who feel stuck in a way where they can't get out, where they don't feel they have the right to exit that relationship, they should know that other people have experienced this, that there's a way out. Oh, all so important. Okay, so let's hear a little bit about when you were just saying that the therapist was preying on or playing on your vulnerabilities. I'm curious to just hear a little bit more about that as you see them to whatever degree you're comfortable sharing them. Mm -hmm. What are your vulnerabilities or what were they at the time? Well, I guess this kind of kind of just set the scene a little bit. My mother was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis when I was about five. And then uh, my parents separated when I was around eight. So basically, I ended up being in a role where I had a lot of responsibility for my age, helping take care of things with my mom, take care of things around the house. And because of the relationship between my parents, which was kind of strained, it was hard for me to really establish a good connection with my dad. So when ultimately I, I was having a lot of anxiety and issues with leaving my mom, my dad felt that I should go see somebody for treatment, which is how I ultimately ended up there. And when I did, this therapist that I saw, I guess he noticed certain things in me that he felt he could easily just persuade me. He gained my trust. You know, he made me feel like I had a voice. I was just I always felt like it was I was in the middle between my parents and it was hard to find my own self and I couldn't have that for myself. So, you know, I just kind of came in very lost and he saw that and he stepped in as a figure in my life who was guiding me, mentoring me, bringing me in a direction uh, in my life very similar to maybe the path that he was taking as he was a therapist and he was guiding me into this realm of learning psychology and wanting to do that as my study in college. To go back to what you're saying, so you had these significant uh, experiences when you were young that yes. shifted you and shifted your role and a sense, I guess, of responsibility and caretaking. And I think out of love and devotion, you know, uh, that means that sometimes kids put themselves second and it's sometimes hard to have that voice and to know that you matter in that way through no fault of anyone really, you know, it just is sometimes is. But I think it's important actually that you're saying that he's a therapist, not a life coach, not someone who's unlicensed. He's a licensed therapist. Yeah, that's correct. So that's an important piece. So it's not just these kinds of things that happen within fringe communities and there's no oversight. And I mean, this is somebody who went through training, but still did a lot of things clearly that he shouldn't have done that we're going to talk about. And so while I know that you don't want to mention his name, I told you that's fine, that you don't need to, because what matters more, I think, is... Mm, what happens, how also there's this sort of, um, I want to say like a slow burn, like, you know, you get kind of in and then things start to change, but sometimes it's imperceptible or sometimes you're able to be convinced it's for your benefit. And so you don't put up walls to what's happening because you might not even know that it shouldn't be happening in therapy if you haven't had experience with therapy. Right. Definitely not. I had no experience with what therapy is, what the boundaries of therapy are supposed to be. And obviously I had no tools to navigate a situation where the therapist is not maintaining any of the boundaries or anything that's supposed to be set there for the protection of the client, of the patient. So it really created a very confusing situation for me because, you know, I believed that I was there for healing. I believed I was there to to get help. And at that age that I went, I think I was just too young to even really know what kind of help that I needed. 
Mm. I just knew I would have to be there and I wasn't feeling right. So, so then also when you say that you weren't feeling right, what did that mean? How would you have described yourself at the time? I would have a lot of anxiety when it came to being away from my mom because I had the role of her sole caretaker from being very young and I felt very responsible for her. So what ultimately would happen is if I ever had to go away or my father wanted me to go visit my grandmother in another state, I would be unable to leave. I would have so much anxiety that I would be sick. Like I would shake, I would be like nauseous and um, I didn't know how to handle that separation. And I also felt like without me, my mother is going to suffer, you know, that she's at risk. That's what I felt like I needed help with. Right. So, I mean, I already hear the irony as you're talking that you were going to be going to therapy to help you kind of feel free and feel more independent and feel okay with having your own life. And yes. right. Yeah, totally. Knowing where, even though we haven't talked yet, but kind of knowing where this story is probably going, that is immensely ironic that that was your goal. And I'm sure that's not how it ended up at all. But yeah, I mean, it was really quite the opposite. I mean, that was, that's the point, because instead of being free, instead of feeling like I can grow, mature, have a life, anything, even if it meant, I mean, really my connection with my family, my, my dad's side of the family was very strained because ultimately this therapist, he used things that I told him in therapy about my things my mother would tell me about my dad. And he would enforce those things to make me feel that these things could be true, that he doesn't love me, that he doesn't have my best interests in mind and really deliberately put a wedge between myself and my father, who was a lifeline for me in that situation. Eventually, my dad took me to therapy. He brought me there. But after some time, my father felt that it wasn't doing me any good and I should stop. So he stopped paying for the services. Okay. And it was at that time that this therapist convinced me, no, you shouldn't stop therapy. It's important that you have consistency. It's not good for your mental well-being and you should continue coming and you should pay for yourself. And almost even taking that as though it was like an act of uh, maturity, like I'm taking an action for myself, I'm doing something for myself. And that even puts more of a separation between myself and my family, my father. You know, what I see a lot, in, and I know I put together this video on YouTube about healthy therapy versus unhealthy therapy, just because I've worked with a lot of people who've dealt with unhealthy therapists, licensed and unlicensed. And that one of the things that happens is that there is a competition that's set up between the therapist and other people in your life who are a threat to the therapist. And they will paint them as a threat to you so that you disengage. But oftentimes I've noticed that there is, not always, but oftentimes, that there is more of a threat of the same gender person or connection that that client has outside of the therapist, whether it be female, male, or whatever other gender. Mm. I think that they need to out alpha the other man or the other woman or the other whomever in your life. Did you get that sense? Yeah, it's interesting that you say that. And it's, you know, when I, it makes me think back to the way he would interact with the male figures in my family. Either both of my uncles, my father too, especially, but it was almost like butting heads, you know? He made me feel like he, as my therapist, knew more than what anyone else in my family was trying to tell me, to guide me, or, you know, what they were doing for me. I was really convinced that he, for some reason, had my best interests in, in mind, more so than any of these other people. Mm hmm Right. Well, you know, it happens a lot also with your age, with being a teenager. You know, if someone can come in and say, oh, yeah, I understand. I'm sure it's really a drag with your parents. You know, then you feel like they really care about you. And it could be a therapist and it could be someone who's ahead of your youth group or your coach or, you know, you feel like they really do have your back, that they really get mm -hmm. that there is this conflict and they can help you with it. And then 
it seems that sometimes the help that they give you is by having you disengage from this person rather than actually forging a good, healthy relationship with them. Um, right. It's unfortunately common. So I'm curious, when you first met this therapist, what was your impression? I think I was a little unsure when I first met him, but I've also always been very open. So I felt like I should give this a chance. I felt like it's something I should uh, try to do, try to listen to. Probably within the first session or two that I had with him, I had already felt like um, sort of like some sort of connection. He seemed to understand my concerns. He seemed to even understand my, you know, the things that I was interested in, the things I liked. And he showed a connection with that. And I had an interest in the, in the idea of dream interpretation as he used that as part of my therapy. And then he offered me something like a dream group that he hosts outside of therapy. And he offered that to me as something that was free for me, but don't tell any of the other people in the group. So it's almost like right from the beginning, there was this idea of this favoritism or trying to treat me as someone special or make me feel like I'm somebody special. Okay, so I'm just jumping in to say something and then I really want you to talk more. So I'm going to give you more space to do that. But I want to say something about offering you something for free. It's reminding me of uh, a lot of situations where people feel that something was just offered to them in an exclusive way because you were the chosen one or special in some way. You know, it could be that it was free for everyone and he took everyone aside and said, just for you. It's totally possible. In retrospect, right. But, you know, you don't know to think that way because you're not wired that way, that someone might be up to something and that maybe what they're telling you is something they told everyone else. But it also sets up this technique of influence called reciprocity. So if you feel like you're being given something that other people are not being given and it's special, then you, if you're a good person and you're a giver, which you knew you were, that you were then going to give back and be more devoted to this person, I'm assuming. Do you think that played a part? You know, maybe just hearing you explain that now and what it made me go to immediately was that I always wondered why and where did this feeling come from that I have that I almost have to do this for him? whatever it was that I had been doing. I mean, and this is much later on, but I would always feel like, like, where did it come from? Like, why am I feeling like I owe him something? Like, and that I, and that it would be wrong for me to not follow through on something for him. Yeah. And I guess, and that really makes a lot of sense to me now hearing it that way, that he was starting to do those things right in the beginning. Yeah. And I think, Maybe also by kind of pushing away from your father, even though that's not a gift to give anyone, but if you can make it seem like you're protecting someone from other people, then you do feel more indebted. If they can paint these people as your potential enemy or people who are standing in your way and they are going to protect you from those people, then yeah, you're going to feel like you owe them for saving you from something that they made up but still it feels very real at the time. You wanted to be open-minded when you first started working with him. So that means maybe something was a little off or maybe not. I'm just curious. Sometimes people will get kind of a feeling about someone like they're being a little too something, a little too much, a little too close, a little too emotional, a little too personal too quickly something that makes Mm. me a little uncomfortable i don't know if it was that way for you you know i don't know if it really occurred to me that way and if it did i don't think it was something i allowed myself to recognize i don't think that came to mind when i first started seeing him in fact i think i just was happy to have somebody that i could connect with in the real world as opposed to like in an online video game you know i had sort of like this that was like a space, a safe space. But now it's like this person kind of talking to me, accepts my interests. And I think I just was, I was happy to have that. You know, I think I've had an issue with boundaries for a long time and um, being very open and not putting up my defense when I need to. 
So it was easy, I think, for him to just walk right in. Okay. I'm curious just to hear more about how the therapy went, the sort of things that he, quote unquote, helped you with. And I say, quote unquote, knowing there probably were some things that he did help you with. Okay. Well, I mean, that's definitely correct that I did feel better about certain things by coming to see him. I think the anxiety that I did feel was a lot more reduced. So I think that the feelings I had about my mom and what was going on with her, with her multiple sclerosis and what kind of care she was going to get, he almost in some way assisted me. It was, he was somebody I could sort of lean on. I guess I can kind of just describe the session for the most part with him was pretty standard in the beginning. We had our one hour, those boundaries were observed. And of course I was being dropped off and picked up by my father. Mm -hmm. So that sort of worked out. That was pretty status quo for that first, you know, basically through my height, the rest of high school for me. And that pretty much helped me with some of the issues I was feeling uh, with my parents' divorce and just dealing with the situation of taking care of my mom. After I finished high school and I came back from my first semester of college that there was this tension between myself and my dad and my mom because my mom was going to be she couldn't stay home anymore I had to get her set up for uh to go to a nursing home you know and when that was happening my dad I believe for and I believe he was right in how he felt uh since my parents were divorced he of course was paying child support and alimony and with my mom going into a nursing home and me now being on my own he felt that I should come live with him and uh, I think this whole situation was where this therapist also stepped in and used it to kind of put me at odds with my dad because my dad filed to make changes legally so that I could come live with him. And this therapist convinced me that I should not do that, that my dad doesn't have my best interests in mind. And also I had so much like anxiety and stress over having to figure out bringing my mom to a nursing home everything was kind of happening at the same time. He did convince me to hire an attorney and oppose my dad in court, which I did, and the judge denied his motion. And, you know, that was a very hurtful thing for both myself and my dad, because I didn't want to really be there in court doing that. I didn't know what to do in that situation, and I was following the guidance of this therapist. Wow. You know, I, I hear a lot about these kinds of stories of a therapist doing sort of recovered memories with people and coming up with um, stories that prove there was abuse and then they're encouraged to, you know, accuse their parents of abuse and, you know, get the police involved. And it creates a lot of chaos, a lot of chaos. Can you take us to just being in court and fighting against your father? What was going on for you inside? I guess the best way to describe it is that I was very confused about why I was there. And in some ways, I almost felt like, like I didn't know what else to do. And I felt very detached as well. Like I just didn't feel it present in myself. Like it was almost happening outside of me. You know, I couldn't really, you know, understand. Like, I guess being in that situation, I felt that... I would never be in court with my dad. I would never want to do that. How I ended up being here and why I was guided to do that that way. I thought, well, he, this therapist has my best interests in mind and maybe his methods aren't always the most conventional, but he always has a reason for doing or saying what he does. So I'm trusting him. I'm just going to be here because that's supposed to be the right thing to do. And that's the way I got through that. There was never a real animosity or anger between my dad and myself you know we definitely love each other so it was so weird being in court with us having nothing against each other really I mean you can imagine the aftermath of that right I want to ask about that and first I want to ask about the following did you feel like your therapist was going to be proud of you and happy with you and smile for you doing this and see it as kind of a victory that he was helping you to be strong enough to do this? I think I did. At that time, I really did look to him and really not just 
him, but also his wife, because they both were really present in my life together, really from that point, like just leading up to that point. And she was very present in it. So it almost felt like they were like parents to me and I did want to make them proud. You know, they're telling me this is what the right thing is to do. So I wanted to do what is supposed to be right. Okay, I want to ask about the wife in one second. <laughs> There's so much to the story. My goodness. Okay, so before we get to that, what was going to be the plan? So here you weren't going to be with your dad. Where were you going to live? What were you going to do? So I was I was 20, and um, I was just going to keep living in, in my apartment, and my dad would continue to you know, pay this child support and alimony. I would continue living there until, essentially until my mom, you know, had... So, you know, I was felt that she was secure mm -hmm. in this nursing home. She was, you know, only 47 years old at the time. Wow. So uh, it was hard to be putting her in that position. So there was just a lot of really big things I was trying to deal with all at the same mm -hmm. time. So the plan was the plan, though, is that uh, for her to go there and then I would just maintain the apartment until, you know, until further notice. I really didn't know how that how I could ultimately ultimately conclude that. But I figured I'd get there eventually. And again, I was trusting the therapist to guide me through this as well. I mean, it really goes so far to say that this therapist is the one who found the nursing home for me that my mother is at right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, they were very deeply involved with the, all these processes. Wow. So, you know, I often think of manipulators like this as thieves. It's, a, it's something that comes up in my mind because of how much they take away and how many relationships they steal. Uh, and you know, your self-confidence and a lot of things also get stolen, but it sounds like you had the potential to be able to live with your dad and that was taken away. I don't know about permanently or, uh, if it ever turned around or if you just stayed living on your own. So I essentially, I did live there on my own up until about 2013. And then I just really, I couldn't afford because um, by that point in time, I was considered emancipated. Mm -hmm. So, they, you know, I wouldn't keep getting any support from my dad and I wouldn't be able to afford rent where I was at. Now, there were times where I had tried to, I, where I had wanted to move out of this place that I was staying in so I could do something more for myself in a, in a better, something smarter, money-wise, having an apart, a smaller apartment that was just for myself. Uh, or just a different situation. And um, every time I spoke to this therapist about wanting to do this, he basically convinced me, he told me that I can't afford to still live where I'm living, that there's no reason for me to move. I shouldn't have to move. Mm -hmm. um, for some reason, he was very much against me leaving mm -hmm. as many times as I had tried to do so. And it could be because we were very, I lived only maybe eight minutes away from him. Maybe that being close proximity was something he saw beneficial. And for me to do something and get my own apartment or something like that may have also been a step in my own direction away from him. Mm -hmm. So he always discouraged that. Interesting. Well, you know, I, I wonder, because I don't know what's in his head, but I wonder if part of the reason is that sometimes people like this will have someone create drama, unnecessary drama in their lives so that the therapist can help them through the drama. Uh, and be there for them during this thing that they manufactured. And also they'll keep things kind of uncomfortable where there is this sort of crossover. You're not really fully independent. You're still dealing with relationships and being in someone else's space. And, and then you can process that. It's like developing more material for the therapy. What do you think? I mean, I would absolutely say so for sure, because you know, looking back, things could have been handled much differently. Absolutely. There's no reason things that it has perceived the way that it did. And, you know, not at all at any point did he try to help mend the relationship between my father and I. If he is somebody who is as good as he claims to be and has all his expertise, but does the complete opposite. I mean, doesn't help me in any way. And my father could see that too. And the problem was, is that as much as my dad was trying to tell me, you know, I was already connected to this therapist in this way. 
So I didn't believe what anyone else was telling me that I should do for myself. I only believed what the therapist told me. Got it. Okay. I'm wondering also about friendships during that time and how much he got involved in any of your friendships. Um, well, I honestly, I mean, I didn't have that many friends really that I would be doing, uh, much activities with. I was, um, I had a friend that I made in uh, college and uh, we would play some music together. And uh, one of the things that I had, was doing at that time was actually playing in a band with this therapist where we were actually playing shows. You know, he had me incorporated into his, his own personal project, which, you know, we would go out and he basically said that this is music therapy that he's providing for me as if he's providing me a service. But, you know, meanwhile, I have to be present for all of our band practices. I have to be present. I have to move all of his equipment. I have to take care of all these things for him. And now I'm basically running his, I'm his sound guy. I'm his, I'm transporting his gear. I'm his band member. It's like, I'm doing all these things instead of just having, I guess what you may call regular music therapy where you learn an instrument or maybe, I don't know. It just had to go, way beyond all of that where now I have to be there with him at his house and we're practicing till late at night I mean all these things where you know they, I had no idea where's where's the line where's the boundary right also not an uncommon thing in these scenarios that there isn't a sense about the therapy ending in the therapy office um yeah and that, sure. that relationship being just confined to therapy and so here you were paying him for the benefit, I suppose, of therapy, but also you were doing free labor for him. Yeah, and it wasn't just that. I mean, I was running errands for him, you know, where for whatever reason, he couldn't go do it himself. And um, he would stay home while I would drive to the supermarket and have him on the cell phone trying to tell me all the things that he wants to get and pick up for him while I'm at the supermarket. I'm spending maybe more than three to four hours there trying to tell him everything that's there. I mean, I'm putting all this time, I'm doing all this work for him, you know, and then I'm helping him with things like landscaping his house, mm -hmm. um, mowing, mowing the lawn, you know, helping him clear out his gutters or helping him if he has a problem with his plumbing or his toilet or something like that. There was just really no limit. And so when you were doing these things and when you're schlepping and growing and shopping and all of it and cleaning, what were you thinking? Well, that's where I, that's the weird part is because, you know, there's that part of me that's I'm feeling like I just, why am I doing this? Like, I, I don't want to be doing this. I wish I was doing something else. But then there's like a voice in my head that says, you know, that this is the right thing to be doing. You know, these are people who love me. They care for me. You know, they're also extending anything of their own to me as well. And they need help because they're having difficulties with one thing or another, and they're asking for my help. And how can I not be there to help and offer that help to somebody who's helped me so much? Yeah. So, you know, that, that happens a lot that people justify things in their mind and they find a way to make it make sense. That's what our brains sort of need and push us to do. And we have it all make sense in that context. As you spend time looking at it from a distance, you can see that it doesn't come together. But at the time it did. And so I wonder also what would have happened if you had said no. So that's another thing because it's, it was very hard to say no um, to anything. And whenever I would try to say no, he wouldn't just take no, for, he wouldn't respect that. He wouldn't just take no for the answer. And his way of trying to keep me coming in was sort of in a way that didn't seem aggressive because it seemed like, well, no, I'm just, for example, like he'd say something to me like, well, you helped us with all these things. So I just want to, I want you to have dinner with us and I'll be tired and I'll want to go home and say, no, I'm like, no, thank like, I'm, I'm okay. I'm just, you know, I'm glad everything's good. And I'm just going to go home. He's like, no, no. But then that's where I can't get away. That's where I can't get free. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like no matter, anytime I say no, he won't accept it. And ultimately he just convinces me, no, 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 it's quick. I'll just stay or whatever. 
And then the more I pressed, it's like, if I can continue to press in a situation where I don't want to do something, ultimately it becomes a question of, oh, well, what's, what's wrong with you? Why are you objecting? Why are you being this way? This isn't who you are. This isn't how you normally are. And they would say things to me like that. And when I say they, I mean him and his wife. I was made to feel like if I wanted to do something of my own in the moment, if I'm rejecting something that they're offering me, I can't reject it because then there's a problem with me. There's something wrong with me. The phrase, this isn't who you are, is chilling to me. Because when you hear something like that, what you know is that the other person has uh, defined you and needs for you to define yourself in the same way that works for him. And then when you come out of a situation like that, you're going to experience what most people experience, which is not knowing who you are, right? And what is really you and what's okay and what's not okay. And it, it just, that's a down the rabbit hole phrase. That was so prevalent in my experience with them is this feeling of like, I, I can't explore any of the things that I'm really feeling. And, and through that, I also, that created, you know, doubts in me, maybe very quiet doubts, and, but they were there like seeds, you know, like they just were in me and um, I would just push them down and push them down for years and years and years and years. Mm -hmm. to be able to continue saying that, oh, no, they're good, they care about me, and so on. Okay, and so quick question before we start to talk about his wife also. Yes, um, yeah. Okay, hello. Uh, how did he, and I guess they, want you to feel about your mother? So when it came to my mom, I think they would always use that as something to tell me that I was a really good person. You know, to say, you know, you're really there for your mom. Nobody else is going to do that. You know, you're great, Jonathan. You do great stuff like that. Um, I think they really use that as a thing to try to make me feel like, okay, I'm, like, you know, this is who you are. You take, you're responsible. You take care of others. You help people, which really played into what they wanted for themselves as well. So where they could compliment you or where they felt comfortable being comfortable with your relationship was when you were exhibiting things that then they could take advantage of in their own lives. Right. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So let's talk then about his wife. Is she a therapist? Is she not? What's her story? Well, I believe she had studied psychology in college, but um, I knew she had at one point been teaching, I think, English. And then beyond that, she was just kind of like always there with him. She was just always present there because, I mean, first of all, all of our therapy sessions were done in his house. Mm. So, you know, whenever I'm there, I'm in his house. It's not like I'm even in an office where I could just leave, you know, it's mm -hmm. like I'm, I'm there in his home. They kind of have me. And, you know, with her being there, she kind of stepped in as this, like a maternal role. She wasn't working from the time that I had uh, first met them. She had stayed home and um, she just seemed to always be home. I didn't really know what she did. She really kind of wasn't doing anything. They didn't, you know, I guess she took care of stuff around the house. But she didn't have, they don't have children. So um, from my observations, she, she kind of was just uh, erratic. She was kind of all over the place, you know, she was emotional. And uh, I mean, things got to a point where, she had some, she was trying to take care of her mother who was ill, which is again, where they had recruited me for help. But as that happened, she just, between the relationship between her and this therapist kind of became more and more aggressive. And I was in the middle of all of it. You know, it became physically aggressive. It was verbally aggressive. Just the things that I witnessed by being there and watching the interactions and arguments that they had. She was very controlling. She didn't want him to go anywhere. You know, there were times where he would actually just run away from home and run and like either get in his car and just show up at my house and want me to hide him in my home and not answer her phone calls like crazy things like this. You know, like I'm and I'm now in the middle of between him and his wife and telling trying to talk to her and trying to 
get him back to wherever he's got to go. So that was, I mean, that's just one of the very small ways that she kind of plays a role in all of these things here. Okay, so that's a very small way. Okay, I can only, mm, can only imagine. If you can only imagine. What I am curious about, though, was you were saying that you helped her care for her own mother. Yes. How did you do that? So I, I guess with whatever incident happened with her mother, who was kind of like sort of like in a, a coma, and she was on a ventilator unit in a care facility, and it was somewhere in New York. It wasn't even in New Jersey. And um, I don't know, at some point, this therapist had claimed to have had suffered some type of stroke or something where now he cannot see, he can't function, he can't drive to this care facility with his wife to take care of or watch or take care of her mother. Uh, And they asked for my help to do this. So now, and the, and the time that they would go is they would go during the night shift for whatever reason. I guess they felt like they needed to be vigilant or something because they didn't trust people. So they would, we essentially would, I would pick them up or get to their house around 10 PM and go to this care facility and get back, you know, at sometimes four or five o'clock in the morning, uh, almost on a regular, on a daily basis. And when I'd go there, I'd help her like with uh, the care of her mother-in-law, like cleaning and even doing like massage and muscle stimulation on her body while she's in this coma. She's not moving. I mean, helping them clean up the, uh, the room and transport them there into the emergency room in the hospital or back and forth, just everything that I was doing there. And that lasted for about like a year and a half until uh, she passed away. So, you know. What time would you get home? Between four and seven in the morning. And what were you doing during the day? Either sleeping, you know, just recuperating. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, I couldn't, and I, you know, at that particular point in time, which was probably between like 2011 and 2013, I felt like I couldn't, like if I, I was thinking, how could I take a job? How can I go to school? Because, you know, he could call me on my phone at any moment and I have to answer that phone. I can't uh, ignore that phone call because it could be an emergency. It could be something with her mother and we have to go right away. Like I have to be able to answer my phone, drop everything I'm doing, whether I was with friends, whether I was, if I had a job, if I had if I was going to school or anything that I was doing had to be dropped in that moment and I had to get there. Otherwise I would face the consequences, some form of like, I mean, I would be berated. I would be, you know, really just told horrible things about not being there for them, putting his mother's life at risk because I'm not there. A couple things about that. One of the things that happens within this very controlled system often is that you stop being able to further your own goals. Your job, your value is in helping them further theirs. So that's why I was asking if you're getting home at four or five in the morning, how would you be in school and how would you have a job? And especially if you have to be on call, you know, there is this idea that I've talked to people in the past about certain relationships being parasitic and that you were the host and Mm -hmm. they were parasitic. And so they're going to feed off of you. You're going to get depleted and be run ragged. And if you say no, because you need to take a break, you're going to be berated. So I'm sure you felt really trapped. Yeah, I mean, I felt entirely trapped. And I also, I guess, you know, I felt like I can't leave. Uh, you know, I felt like something bad's going to happen if I don't show up. Okay. So I'm wondering about the being berated. So they were already saying that if something happened to this mother, that would be on you, which would be horrible. And they also know that you're someone who was a caretaker of your own mother. So that's going to go right under your skin and be used for behavior modification, I'm sure, very successfully. What else did they say about you or to you if you were trying to set a limit or what were you afraid that they were going to say or accuse you of being yeah so it just it was really really hard again to to say no you know the moment i said no was the moment that they were using to really put me in a situation where i felt confused about 
like what I'm supposed to be doing. Again, if I say no, it's like, well, this isn't, this isn't who you are. Why are you doing this? You know, again, it's like making me question myself, who I am, my motives, you know, my quality, you know, I want to see myself as a good person. I want to feel that I'm doing something good. And if I'm ignoring somebody who needs my help, it's, I'm really doing a terrible thing. Wow. I, I wonder just as you're saying these things to me, what it, what's it like for you to remember this? I mean, it's harder than I thought. <laughs> yeah. Um, I guess I haven't really, you know, kind of gone into this for a while, but um, I mean, I guess I just wanted to trust them. I, I did trust them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I did feel that, um, you know, that they, that they loved me, that they cared for me. I felt that way for them. You know, I really believed in that. I believed, I, I felt truly trust. I thought that everything that we were doing, everything I was doing was out of good intention. I mean, at least I know from me, but I thought that, you know, they were somebody who was depending on me. You know, I guess I just felt uh, I couldn't handle not being able to do that, to be, to be there, to, I don't know. I think I have this feeling that also is like with my mom you know, trying to be there to help her. And I, and that's another situation where I, I can't, there's nothing I can do to, to help her situation. And it's kind of like this, um, you know, you can't win really. I know it's very hard to dredge this all up. And there's a reason that people want to put things like this behind them. So I'm really grateful that you're willing to talk about these things as hard as they are, just so you can let people know what to watch out for in very specific yeah. ways, but also for you to be able to just say it, I think, and honor that experience of yours. Yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> I really do. I know. I feel that that's, that's, I mean, that's exactly the reason why, you know, when, um, you know, my, my girlfriend told, had found your podcast because she knows about my situation and, I guess she wanted to understand it better from somebody outside of the situation. And uh, she felt that it was a really great resource and, you know, she showed me. So that's why I started listening and everything just was like ringing all the bells. So I just was thinking like, okay, this, maybe this is something that is important to do because it took away such a long period of time in my life for me, for me being able to be, to grow up as a, as a, as a young as a teenager and a young adult and and do these things in my life and have a life without being intruded upon without being uh, interrupted and um, expected of doing things that i should never have to be doing one more thing before you go i want to thank jonathan so much for the bravery that it took to start having this conversation and talking about something that he had not talked about before. It is an important, important subject. It is something that happens more often than people talk about. And I want to let you know that it is something I come across because of the work that I do. People contact me quite often talking about their therapist, their coach, their whomever, who has crossed boundaries, who has not kept to what I think should be their professional demeanor and their ethics and seem to be getting away with it. There is an unfortunate trend in this profession where there is a crossing of boundaries, a blurring of lines, and I find it problematic. Maybe I'm old school, but I was taking this online course for continuing education credits through this Zor Institute. They were talking about how you can go out and hang out with a client and go for a walk with them and play in the park and go to their wedding and whatever else. 
as long as it's discussed and it's okay. And I have a problem with that. I think probably more of a problem than other therapists might because I see what can happen. Doesn't mean it always will, but it can. So I do really think that it's important for therapy in its own way for this profession to be very mindful about really keeping the boundaries very, very clear. What I think is important also is that Jonathan, in his story, talks about betrayal, so much betrayal, and so much, of course, confusion, but really betrayal. So much time when you're dealing with someone like his therapist, who I would see has this narcissistic style, narcissistic personality disorder, even though I've never met him, so I'm not officially diagnosing him, but just go with that as a kind of a descriptive. When you're dealing with this kind of personality, what you don't realize when you're walking into a professional setting thinking the person is going to be professional, thinking the person is going to be an adult because they are an adult, thinking the person is going to be mature, is that instead you're walking into a trap. You're walking into a trap because you're sitting suddenly across from someone who is spending so much of their time fighting off potential threats to their ego and needing to prove themselves as more important, as superior, and who also don't really act in a way that feels at all civil. Narcissists can be extremely mean. In the mind of the narcissist, there are only losers and winners, nothing in between. So when you have that kind of world where it's like a kind of a war that's going on all the time, you will then feel that you have to go on the offense so that you're not on the defense. Because again, there is no other way to coexist. So everything is a perceived competition. And the narcissist is always worried that they're on this precipice of losing everything, of losing the status of being the most important or the wisest or most powerful person in your life. Usually, narcissists try to out-alpha the people in your life. If they feel most threatened by someone who you feel most tied to, they will need to divide and conquer. And that person will be pushed out of your life or you'll be made to feel that you no longer should have ties to them, you can no longer trust them, or that they really shouldn't have so much power. Any threat to the narcissistic ego needs to be erased immediately in their minds. And the head spinning part is that they will want to erase this threat by any means necessary. This is when people go off the rails. People who are wired typically without having this kind of personality disorder usually cannot predict the tornado that's about to consume them where it will be coming from and what kind of damage it will do because that kind of behavior, that kind of thinking, that by any means necessary kind of thinking is so foreign. And it's not until you spend time with a narcissist or that particular narcissist to be able to predict a little bit better how that person might be behaving and what they're about to do, even though people, again, who are typically reasonable, they're going to suppose that when the narcissist seems fine, is interacting with you in a way that seems reasonable, that they've suddenly sort of come to their senses. And now they're going to be able to kind of act in a way with you that is going to be reasonable from here on in. That's not at all the case. So you want to remember that when someone who has been so unreasonable for so long suddenly acts in a reasonable way, don't let your guard down. Because typically what's happening is it's the exception, not the rule. 
And sometimes it's actually calculated. It's a ruse to help you lower your defenses so that then they can do kind of a one-two punch. Being in connection with a narcissist is like having emotional whiplash over and over again until you pull away from that relationship. One part of this that's inordinately difficult to remember is that the meanness and viciousness the narcissist has and shows is actually not personal. It's not about you at all. It is tremendously confusing and it's very, very difficult. But really, the issue here is, for example, with a relationship with a therapist, the more information you share with them, like you would typically share with a therapist in the therapist's office, the more they will feel that they have material not to help you with, but to use against you, to use to control you. The more you open up and tell them about the things that pain you, the things that bother you, your history, your traumas, the more they will then know not again how to help you heal, but what buttons to push. And they will then feel empowered to do so because after all, you gave them the information. So now the information they feel is theirs to do with as they please. And often it comes ricocheting back and hits you right in the face. And when you become stronger or have this moment of strength and feel hints of having some confidence coming back after you've been repeatedly knocked down by a narcissist, you might develop kind of enough confidence in a moment where you decide to tell them that you kind of see what they're doing and that they have a problem. And you can tell that what they're doing isn't quote unquote normal and it's not right, they won't say, thank you so much for enlightening me. They will unleash, they will unleash a tirade either overtly or covertly with great strategy, kind of plotting and planning their revenge. Nothing makes a narcissist more angry than being called out absolutely accurately on the things that they have actually done. A very confusing part of all of this, too, is that from minute to minute, they create their own version of reality. What is right and what is wrong, what was right yesterday is wrong today. The rules change, and it's then very, very hard to be able to have a sense of mastery. This is what happens actually in cults a lot. And so you can't predict their behavior. And there's almost no possibility for you to get it right if the rules keep changing, if the floor keeps slipping and sliding underneath you. You also have people in your life who are not able to be happy for you. They're not able to be proud of your accomplishments fully. They might pretend to be, but they don't really feel it. And they're not able to be supportive in situations where they feel you might be surpassing them. They are immature to a fault. They're perennially pre-adolescent. And when they are full-grown adults who are dressed like adults, who have the chronology to prove they are or should be adults, and have degrees as adults, it's easy to forget that really inside they are children. And the reason it will never work to have a successful therapeutic relationship with a full-blown narcissist is that while there are different forms of therapy and different approaches and different ideas about possible outcomes, the goal should be, at least what I feel, is that you should feel that you're improving in your life in some way, or you're gaining traction, getting closer to your goals, or that you're improving your self-esteem. But the therapist will speak to you about how those things that they see are really wonderful and improving your life are not good for you. They'll feel threatened by your success. They'll try to get you to cut off from someone who you're having a wonderful relationship with, someone who brings you so much happiness. They'll find a way to knock you down, make you feel you're not quite ready in your life without them. You're not quite skilled enough yet. 
or that you really don't have the confidence yet to go through the world without their guidance. And they will take away any other source you have of strength, of wisdom, any other connection that threatens them. It's ultimately one of the most selfish pictures, selfish scenes that you'll come across. Because narcissists will always end up making you pay a price for the self-esteem you have or the self-esteem you're developing. And when that happens, it's time for you to move on because what you want instead is for them to pay the price, not for you. For them to pay the price, it means you move on. You take away their ability to have an impact on you. You take away their power by just simply no longer caring what they have to say about you, about your life, and how you should be living it. It's a very hard relationship to disengage from because they're usually not through with you and will cling on to that relationship just to see if they can still get you back. And so you will hear more next week from Jonathan about his experiences, and you'll see more about the nature of this kind of distortion and dysfunction that exists within these kinds of relationships, if we can call them that. Talk to you next week. Thanks again for listening. Tired of ads? Well, listen or download this show for free on NPR's radio public app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and more. Please support Indoctrination at patreon.com slash indoctrination. We have over 100 interviews that you can access with any donation. Subscribers receive bonus interviews and other cool goodies. And we love hearing from you too. So send us an email at indoctrinationshow at gmail.com. Thank you for your support.